And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. It's Friday again. Time for some flashing back. Okay. Oh, you have to talk about it. Oh, really? I was flash. Never mind. Oh, those flashbacks. Those flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Drugs are kicking in, are they? Shh. Oh, sorry. Not anymore. Not the drugs. The, the... monkeys are coming. <laughs> Not again. Uh... Well, we got to board up the doors again. So while we're boarding up the doors, we'll play an episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yes. This is Sheer Darkness number seven. Called Oh the Horror Part One. This is from March fifteenth, two thousand thirteen. Uh, this week, change up, changes up gears and talks about their favorite genre, horror. In the first of two parts, the duo talk about their all-time favorite horror films and how they impacted their lives, as well as why they picked the movies they did. All right. Speaking of horror movies, I think I hear a monkey at the door. Oh God! Get the gun. Here's the show. Greetings, everyone. I am Terry D. Shearer. And I'm David K. Montoya. And I bid you welcome to Sheer Darkness. Hey, kids. You know, as a writer or entertainer in general, we talk about our own work and our own creations, you know, all the time. We're constantly promoting our stuff. But do we rarely ever speak about being fans of, of what we love to do? You know, it, it, think about it. Before Terry and I entered the world of storytelling, we were fans of a particular genre, you know, with great storytelling, either it be movies, novels, or even comic books for that matter, you know, um, but we really never spoke about it in, in public. You know, we've, we've talked about it in private. And well, that's exactly what Terry and I did. We got together and we discussed not only our favorite genre, which is horror, by the way, for any of you that don't know, and we also talked about our favorite horror movies and literature. We got into it so much. We spent well over our allotted time per episode, you know, because we have like, uh, we, we really can't go over so much. It's more than an hour at this point. Um, so we had to actually break it into two parts. Um, so this part, uh, Terry and I discuss the, the horror movie genre we talk about our favorite horror films and then we break it off and then we'll come back next week and we'll pick up with what's our favorite horror books and our horror authors okay so welcome to the first of our two-parter discussion as terry and i talk about our favorite genre horror all right kids let's pick up right after i asked terry what he wanted to talk about this week Yeah, I thought tonight we might uh, break away from writing and talk about something that more of our listeners might be interested in. Uh, but tonight we might discuss horror in general. Oh, okay, that'll be cool. Um, so, what kind of what kind of horror do you want to discuss? I thought we might discuss horror in film first off, and. Uh, branch 
literature. And if we have time, maybe we'll even get into comic horror. Okay? So, Dave, why don't you, uh, what are your five favorite horror movies, just right off the top of your head? Let's see, my top five horror films. Um, number one is definitely The Exorcist. Uh, let's see, number two, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I like, um, oh, George Romero's um, original Night of the Living Dead. That was a great movie. And Amityville Horror. Um, not so much the original. I really like the remake. That was really good, too. So those are my top five. Really? Okay, well, Night of the Living Dead was on my list, too. But uh, what about the other ones? Uh, what about those movies? Just really makes you think they're, you know, some of the best horror movies you've ever seen. Well, I would say for The Exorcist, The Exorcist just literally scares the hell out of me today. I mean, it, it has not lost its its flair for, you know, horror. Um, you know, I, I believe in that type of stuff. I believe in demons and, and possession and, and stuff like that. And, you know, it, that kind of thing gets to me at the core of who I am, you know, and... Um, you know, we, we talked about my beliefs and whatnot, but, um, you know, and I think, well, I don't think, I know that that plays a big role, you know, in, in making that movie so frightening. Um, you know, because, for example, my wife, who's who's pretty much agnostic, you know, that movie doesn't do much for her. But for me, like I said, it scares the hell out of me. I remember being introduced to that movie I used to go over to my cousin Virgil's house on the weekends. He he had this big house, and, and he had all these, you know, um, what were they? They weren't, well, he had VHS as well, but he had the laser discs. And what, he was a big horror fan. And he would let me go and watch whatever I wanted. In fact, that was probably when I had my first beer, you know, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, uh, he had the Exorcist director's cut, or before it was the director's cut, it was uncut, and he let me watch it, and oh my god, I, I, I was probably nine or ten when I saw this, so, you know, I, I was still more so better of understanding, you know, what the storyline was about, and it just scared the crap out of me. I remember when they had it and, and um, you know, she was doing the spider walk down the stairs. That, oh, you know, in fact, I'm kind of getting goosebumps about it right now. Or obviously the classic part where, you know, she's spitting out the, the, the green slime or the green pea soup. That was just really, really intense for me. Or when, uh, you know, the, the whole masturbation with the crucifix. And and for me, being so young, I had never seen anything like that. You know, that blasphemous type of, of setting, um, you know, where they were actually degrading, you know, a cross or a crucifix. 
and it, it appealed to me on such a different level than anything I'd ever seen. I mean, even so, the Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'll, I'll talk about that next, but it it was just something that really frightened me. You know, it, it made me feel like there's forces out there that you can't see, and there's really not much that you can do to protect yourself against this. Because, uh, you know, Reagan, she was just a kid. You know, she was an innocent kid. She wasn't into trying to become possessed by a demon or anything like that. And, you know, that, to me, I guess I, I could relate to that character because I was a kid, you know, and I think it... I don't know. I, I really can't explain it, but it was so, so scary. And now that I'm older and I can understand even more so the story, you know, especially when they're at that party. And at first it didn't bug me when I first saw it because it didn't really grab the concept of what was trying to be said. But, you know, when she, when they were all at that party at the mom's house and she came downstairs and, and she told everybody that, you know, you're all going to die. And then she, you know, pees on the floor. Um, that disturbed me as an adult. You know, like I said, as a child, that kind of went over my head. But, you know, now as an adult, that really disturbs me. And, and the whole movie, the whole concept was just so cold and so eerie. And, you know, they've tried to reproduce with several other Exorcist movies, and they just can't get there. You know, it, it's just something that was made, and I'm sure in the, the age of remakes, they're going to try to remake it again, but eventually it's... It, it'll, it'll, it'll not have the same luster as the original. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, that's another one that... That one brought me into the land of monsters, I guess, you know, because from back in the time when, you know, Boris Karloff and, and Bela Lugosi played, you know, vampire and, uh, and uh, Frankenstein or Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, that was pretty much what the eighties had. Uh, you know, they had Freddy Krueger and JC, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, you know, those were the interpretations of the modern day monster. And I was really young um, when I seen Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, it came out in 84, so I think I was only like 6 or 7 at the time. And I remember it that scared the crap out of me too. And um, I, I refused to, to go to sleep after watching the movie, you know, because obviously in the movie you go to sleep, you get killed. And, you know, being so young, I still had a hard time having that distinction between fantasy and reality. And uh, I remember, I, I think I stayed up for like two days, two and a half days. Eventually, I actually just kind of passed out at school because I was so tired, because I was so afraid to sleep. But I think with Nightmare on Elm Street, kind of unlike with The Exorcist, because The Exorcist was a combination of a visual horror story as well as you know a a storytelling technique that was very scary um the concept of nightmare on elm street was in fact scary you know this um child killer gets killed but he's so evil he comes back 
to life and he haunts you in your dreams and he kills you. That was, you know, that's a scary concept. But I think what made Nightmare on Elm Street so frightening, though, was it was visually scary. You know, because you had this guy who was burned to a crisp, his skin's melting off his body. And, you know, he had the claws with the blades, you know, which instantly sets off something with the danger um, you know, he had the, the dirty, tattered clothes with the, the green and orange, uh, you know, sweater, which if, if you know, and I'm pretty sure you know, um, you know, when you do color schemes, there's certain colors that work and so, certain colors that don't work. Uh, interesting enough, and I'm not sure why Wes Craven picked these colors, but green and orange are not a good combination. They just don't appeal to the eye. And, and and obviously that was probably the reason why he picked those colors. Because, um, you know, when you look at green and orange as a combination, something in, in your brain tells you, well, this isn't a right combo. Something's wrong. So looking at him wearing that sweater, you seeing that combination, it instantly tells your brain, you know, something's not right about this person because he has these colors on. And, you know, the boiler room and the smoke and the steam and, and there was lots of blood, you know, especially in the first one. Um, you know, and there was one scene with Johnny Depp, you know, because he, he was actually, that was his first movie he played in was Nightmare on Elm Street. And he gets sucked into the bed and then this fountain of blood just kind of erupts in. Uh, you know, from the bed onto the ceiling, and that was just really disturbing as a child to see this this uh, copious amount, more so copious than anything I've ever seen before. You know, erupt onto the ceiling, or when the the couple were were over at Nancy's house, and you know, the girl gets essentially slaughtered in her sleep and she's flying around and whatnot. Oh, one of the good scenes, one of one of one of my favorite scenes in that movie is where I think it was Nancy, she was laying on her bed or she was going to sleep and, and directly right above the bed was a cross or crucifix, I don't remember what it was. And you can see Freddy Krueger's face starting to come out of the wall and, and that was just a really visually creepy uh, st- storytelling method. I, 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 now as an adult, it's probably not as scary. In fact, um, it's funny because you, you brought up horror movies. I just watched, um, Freddy's dead, you know, just uh, yesterday, in fact, and, and I watched it in 3d and there was nothing frightening about it to me at the time. You know, one of these days, because I actually have the entire box set of nightmare on Elm street. I'll have to sit and watch, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, to see if it still has the same luster as it did, because it's been quite a few years since I actually sat and watched it. But I remember, you know, that scared me. And like I said, it wasn't so much the storyline, it was visually. Visually, it scared the crap out of me. Um, with George Romero, George Romero is just, he's such a, a big influence on me. Um, you know, creatively, and I've always enjoyed his movies. 
Um, interesting enough, though, when I first got into George Romero, it wasn't so much of the zombie stories. It, it kind of brought it to me um, because I knew and understood his political uh, you know, ideology and how he kind of incorporated it with his his stories. And then after that, it just kind of got into you know, George Romero's zombie making. And, you know, who who doesn't love a good zombie flick? And Night of the Living Dead is, is one of those movies where I don't think it could work today because, you know, today now everybody needs blood and gore and, and shit like that. But back then, you know, if you really put it on a spectrum in the 60s, and I remember reading about the big hoopla because there was a, a topless woman on the the movie poster, you know, that was pretty controversial. And I think it was just something for me that set me on a creative path. You know, without Night of the Living Dead, without George Romero, you know, I wouldn't have gone on and, and wrote the end and, you know, came up with the stories that I did. Now, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's totally different. Um, that was just a vile movie. And that kind of struck me at the the monster level of Nightmare on Elm Street did. Uh, not so much that it scared the hell out of me, but it just, you know, something like that could happen. And then when I found out about Ed Gaines and, you know, it was loosely based on that character, that kind of intrigued me more. And just the, the brutality... And the mindset of those type of characters really pulled me in, and I really enjoyed it. I remember watching the first one, and, you know, Leatherface was running around with his chainsaw, and he he was main, chasing the, the main character, the female character. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. And I remember, I was like, I, I flew the whole flick when they finally showed him. I was trying to figure out what, what the hell was he wearing. And I remember asking my cousin Pat, I was like, what is he wearing all over his face? Is it a mask or whatever? And I remember he looked at me and he, he, he told me, he's like, dude, that's somebody else's face he's wearing. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, they skinned his face and now he's wearing it as a mask. And that really troubled me. I was like, wow, you know, what a vicious character. You know, and of course, with them, you know, making human uh what is it, chili? They made Texas chili out of human parts. Uh, you know, it was just... It was something different that I was used to when I saw it. Because, like I said earlier, you know, I had seen The Exorcist by that time. And I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street by that time. So when I, by the time I got to see um, Chain, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was a whole type of genre, a sub-genre of, of horror. And, you know... They've tried a couple times to to redo the movie, you know, with you know sequels. Um, the last one that they did, the Texas Chainsaw, the beginning was really good. That was as pretty much close as the original, as far as you know what they were trying to hit. Um, and with Amityville, I, I think it kind of falls back with the same thing of The Exorcist. You know, I, like I said, I believe in possession and demons and stuff like that. And whenever you bring those type of things into play into a movie, you know, for me at least, it, it really bothers me to my core. And it just, you know, it, it, it was frightening. 
it wasn't so much a, a, the frightening experience that I had with The Exorcist, but still, it was a, a very frightening experience, you know, altogether in, in its own little neat package. Okay, cool. Well, there's something you have to remember. That is that uh, you know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. So I was, you know, trained with uh, Universal Monsters and American International Horror Flicks. Uh, I grew up watching Godzilla, Rodan on TV, and uh, the movie Them, Giant Ants Play. And uh, a lot of that stuff was basically science fiction. Uh, it was all atomic mutations with the bombs and shit. Um, the horror flicks that were available in the 50s were uh, pretty pathetic. Talk about E-movies. So there wasn't really a whole lot that would need to. Uh, grasp onto uh, it was just basics like Frankenstein, Dracula, Lucky Creature, Black and Blue, Invisible Man, the Wolf Man, <clears throat> stuff that was just classic. And uh, in the sixties, American International started coming out with a lot of Edward Poe type movies which Horror, but they weren't what we call today's horror. Um, so, when I think of horror, I, I don't think of uh, slasher flicks, blood, and uh, dozens of people being killed in movies. That's just not what I was, I was trained to understand what horror was. I think there's a, a difference between terror films and horror films. That's just the way I was brought up. I actually agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Um, you know, uh, for like Saul and... Um, that one, Human Centipede, and some other ones, you know, they're okay movies. Well, other than Human Centipede, I just didn't, I, I nah. But, um, you know, Wolf's Creek and stuff like that, they they were more bloody, like you called them, terror movies than, um, you know, horror films. And they're okay in their own right, uh, but I, I do agree, they're, they're not horror-like you know, the examples you gave or, you know, the, the way I feel horror films are done. So getting back to the uh, science fiction horror, it was uh, a number of years before <clears throat> that reached its pinnacle of my, one of my all-time best horror movies ever has got to be Alien. That just, uh, brought about a whole new genre in 
science fiction horror. Before movies when they went into outer space where they had creatures come down from outer space. <clears throat> they were always something that we were with or something that was just ridiculous. But H.R. Geiger designed the alien interior of the alien spaceship. And uh, that guy is so far out in space anyway. Uh, his creation just changed genre around space. Not only can they not hear you scream, but if you become attacked by some sort of monster with acid blood and shit, you're just SOL out there because no one is coming to the off the Nostromo in a lifeboat. You know, she had no idea whether she was in the rest of the guess, several years before she finally was. But anyway, <coughs> Alien is right up there in my top top few because the intensity that movie is just saw that I saw that on the big screen when it first came out and seeing that movie on a big screen was just I was just like you in the spaceship you know in those narrow little corridors and the kind of tunnels and shit that they're tracking down the alien I mean it was just claustrophobic Great movie, one of the best. I remember because I was fairly young when I saw the movie. Um, I think it was on HBO or Select TV or something like that. Um, I remember the monster. Well, let me back up. The alien, you know, as as a child, I I always interpreted it as a monster. You know, it wasn't until I was older that I actually made the connection that it was a, a being from outer space you know there was more than one uh, to me it was just a monster and i remember yeah it was it was scary on on that level um you know and that that was actually one of the first movies that introduced me to science fiction horror um another one i like is event horizon um i don't know if you've seen that one that was uh, a really good one that was horrifying because like what you were saying, you know, you're out in space, no one can hear you scream, no one can come help you, and pretty much you're on your own. What other movies is on your list? All right, well, then I have uh, Night of the Living Dead, and that movie, that movie uh, jump-started a whole new show, zombie movies, which we are still dealing with today, and is just as powerful today as has uh, as always was. And uh, zombies are scary 
because it's not like you know, you just kill them. Well, you can if you hit them in the head, but of course, not if you're dead. It was just the dead who come after you, and all they wanted to do was kill the beach. And it was something that the public had never, never seen before. And part of the, the terror and the horror that people felt when they saw that movie was due to the uh, cannibalistic attitude of the zombies and that they were your family members who were coming back. Uh, so it was gut-wrenching and terrifying all at the same time. That's I also think that the visual storytelling is something that George Romero did really well with the the first, you know, Night of the Living Dead. Um, you know, and the storytelling itself was really good. You know, these these people are, are trying to escape the the living dead, as it were, and you know, you think that there's going to be at least one survivor. And then, you know, towards the end, um, you know, the, the main, the character, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, you know, um, he gets shot and killed at the end. And I was, it, it, what a, what a twist for one. That was really good, um, ending because, you know, the, the concept of this, this picture is that these people are trying to escape and, and make it out with their lives. And you get one person that actually accomplishes that in the movie, and then to turn around and get killed at the end is is really ironic. And I think that was another piece of the movie that really brought it home for me, is because just because one thing escapes another, does it mean that there's another obstacle in the way? And And that kind of played into the whole storytelling as well. It was, it's a great movie. Now, one of my other horror movies, um, again, these are not the typical slasher horror movies. The Haunting in 1963 was one of the best horror movies ever made. Starred uh, Judy Harris, West and was taken from the novel by Shirley Jackson. And in the movie, a group of people go to this old house to <clears throat> explore their own psychic abilities, basically. And without major special effects, almost no blood at all, <clears throat> and just using imagination and the house itself as the horror, it was able to seriously frightened. Almost everyone who saw that movie 
I'm sure it's uh, pretty tame today, considering all of the uh, special effects and whatnot that, that can be learned up. But the haunting is, is just a special movie, and if people have not seen that, maybe we are talking about the 1963 edition. If there, was a, if there was a remake of that movie later on. It's a black and white, but uh, you should watch that movie if you've seen it because it is a horror movie, seriously. Beyond that, another one is Angel Heart. That's from 1987. Starred uh, Ricky Bork, Robert De Niro, Lisa Bonet, and Charlotte Rampton. Again, this movie is not your typical horror type of movie, at least not, not, a, not today's horror. There is, however, blood in this movie. There is lots of blood in this movie. But <clears throat> it's a different kind of uh, sequence. But uh, Mickey Rourke is a private detective in the 1950s, and this is, it has got to be one of his very best uh, acting roles, although he was pretty good in Sin City, but uh, Mickey Rourke is great in this movie, but uh, his detective was looking for this guy who disappeared, and... Uh, He's trying to track him down in New Orleans. So there is voodoo involved and uh, all kinds of twists and turns. You just wonder just what the hell is going on with this story. And the ending is such a weird fucking twist that well, you'll never get it. So that's Angel Heart. Believe it or not, I've heard of that one. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but they're coming out with a remake that's actually due out next year. I don't know who's going to to do you know the casting or, or the director or anything like that, but I know that they're actually doing a remake on Angel Heart. Um, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Weekend that uh, Mary, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, wrote the story. <clears throat> and 
these these people are are in the in this house. And the weird thing about it is that's occurred during the Little Ice Age. Um, and it was summertime, but it was so cold in Europe that summer that they couldn't go outside and enjoy the, the forests and the fields and the surroundings. So they were stuck inside all the time. <clears throat> so they started out reading ghost stories to each other. And then they decided to each of them write a ghost story and see who could write the best one. happens is that all of these fantastical thoughts that they bring up for their stories they start to come to life these creatures of their mind and over a period of a couple of days all of these people have experiences that are induced by, well, yes, they were, some of them were drinking laudanum, but they were all drinking wine. But the fantastical creatures they created in their minds come alive, and the experiences that they have that are intertwined and that they, that they share with these creatures anyway it's just it's an amazing period piece and it is a real horror story so again that would be that would be another one for me so we've got alien night of the living dead angel art gothic and one more that uh some of you may remember again from the 1960s. This one is Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that one. 1968, starred Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, and was directed by Roman Polanski. <clears throat> Rosemary's Baby, again, set a precedent for future horror films that had satanic babies involved, like The Omen, and, uh, oh, I don't know, there were several other takeoffs from Rosemary's Baby, but Rosemary's Baby was the, was the first and probably the best. Uh, that was taken, that story was taken from a book by Ira Levine. But it is a slow motion trip into insanity and terror that you, know, you just have to see it. I mean, again, it's dated uh, it's, you know, decades ago, but it started a trend, almost a new genre by itself. And those are the kinds of horror movies that I think are much more insightful and and horror-ridden than 
you know, stuff like Halloween and uh, Jason slaughtering people and Crystal Lake and Hostel and Saw and shit like that. Those are those are not really horror movies. Those are terror slasher movies. And there's a big difference, I think, if people would really look at some of the old, older classic horror movies. They would understand that there was a difference. Now, that's just my opinion. So you can take it for what it's worth. And, but you should check them out and find out for yourself. It's the only way to do it. It's interesting, the the movie choices you picked. Um, I've actually seen them all, and, and they are good. And it, it's interesting how the subcategories of, of the genre can span so far and, you know, go from, you know, science fiction horror to the, you know, the Omen-esque type horror it's it's really cool, you know, and, and I've even seen the Gothic. Interesting enough with Gothic, though, I, I didn't realize that it was made in the 80s. I don't know if it was just because of the film technique that was used, but it actually felt more of a 70s film. Um, but, yeah, that was a really fun movie, too. All right, kids, we're going to cut it off right there. As you can tell, Terry and I were really getting into that conversation. Um, this is That was pretty much the part where we talking about movies Next episode, we get into talking about, you know, our favorite horror books, and, and we actually get into, you know, horror comics as well. And we just, uh, the fun keeps on going. You know, like I said in the beginning, you know, it, it's, you get caught up in the fact that you're a writer and you are trying to entertain. But before all this happened, you know, we were the ones being entertained, and we were fans and it's without being fans of a genre you know there's no start so there you have it i guess what actually led to the start of our writing so come back for next week for the part two of our conversation and you know like i said we'll dive in and continue to have the fun uh for terry d sheer i am david k montoya and i bid you all a good night Okay, we're almost out of nails. Yeah. I'm gonna, it's a dining room table. Oh, yeah. Then we could just break the nails out of yes. that. Okay, there so we're go. good. Or, you know, we could use spaghetti before it cook it. It's still pretty hard. Yeah, I've tried nailing that in. It doesn't work. you got to hit it really square. Oh, maybe that's my problem. You're off a little bit. Yeah, I just lay it on the wood and bang on it. So uh, it's... No, oh, okay. So what's your favorite horror movie? My favorite horror movie still Night of the Living Dead. Yeah? Yes. I'm a glutton for zombies. That would make you a ghoul. Yeah, or cannibal. Cannibal. No, they're dead. Yeah, but it's yeah. still human. No, it's a zombie. But it was. But it's not, not anymore. anymore. It's reanimated flesh. Right, that makes it a zombie. That takes it out of the human category. But they look like a human. Just because they look like humans. Okay, mannequins look like humans. I haven't eaten one of those in a while. That would make you a termite. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> hmm. A lot of fiber in my diet that week. Yes, it would. <laughs> What's your favorite horror movie? Mary Poppins. That's Ooh. terrifying. <laughs> that umbrella. Some crazy witch lady with that umbrella and that bag. Uh-huh. Singing all the time. Oh, uh, nobody sings all the time. Nobody's that happy. No kidding. She's hiding something. That's what it is. 
Let's get on to episode two. All right. Episode two is part two of Oh, the Horror. Part two of Terry and Dave's conversation about their favorite genre of horror and their favorite horror authors, books, and a brief history lesson about EC Comics, the people who originally brought you the horror comics. Oh, I, I love DC Comics. Yes. Yeah. Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Greetings, everyone. I am Terry D. Shearer. And I am David K. Montoya. I bid you welcome to Shearer Darkness. Welcome back, folks. Uh, this is our part two of the conversation that we had last week. Like I was saying in a previous podcast, Terry and I got into talking about movies and literature, and we went well over our allotted time. We spent over an hour on the whole thing. It was more closer to two hours after the segment was done. So we decided to split it up into two. So this is week number two. Uh, last episode, we talked about our favorite horror movies. And this week, we're going to go and we're going to talk about our favorite horror literature. So set back and relax and enjoy the show. Okay, Dave. So why don't you uh, give me a list of your favorite uh, horror authors or a book or two that uh, you found especially scary or frightening? As far as books go, um, I, I would have to say, you know, the the older stuff from Stephen King was much better than today. Um, in fact, you know, my mind shoots to The Shining. Um, Carrie, Carrie was really, really um, scary for me, and uh, Pet Cemetery. You know, those those ones were kind of like the pinnacle because it, it, it tapped into my imagination and and my imagination filled in the, the vision that Stephen King was trying to portray and, and you know that that was just really frightening for me um, Carrie especially really frightened me um, along with Stephen King you know was the stand and, and I don't think it was frightening but though it would be considered a horror genre book, um, that was that was interesting and, and scary. There were some parts that kind of not like on the level of like the Exorcist type scary, but uh, it still you know there there was parts in it that kind of made my skin crawl. Um, in fact, and as you already know, you know The Stand is my favorite book of all time. Um, I like Max Brooks's World War Z. Um, you know, and, and we talked a little bit about the genre, the genre of zombies and, you know, the flesh eating and, and, and all that. Um, so that's up there. Definitely. Um, a lot, I've read a lot of zombie books. Um, and, and, you know, interesting enough, the next book that I'm going to talk about could actually be interpreted as a zombie book or vampire book, or, you know, it depends on who's reading it. And, um, that is, uh, Robert Matheson's I Am Legend. You know, not, not the Will Smith version or not the Charlton Heston version, Omega Man. I'm talking, you know, the actual written literature from Robert Matheson. And, you know, that really got me going into that world as far as writing zombie stories go. Because, you know, he, at, at, there was parts and times where it kind of got slow. But there was parts of it where you could really feel 
how isolated he was, you know, and, and how much he actually thought about going on and, and just becoming one of them. Um, you know, him playing loud music so he can't hear the people outside his door, you know, and it goes in and, and, and talks about how he gets drunk so he can get through the night. Um, that was just a really fun book, and I really enjoyed that. Um, another one, believe it or not, and, and when I first read it, it was kind of a difficult read, but I, I, you know, I got through it, and then once I got through it, a couple years later, I read it again, and it wasn't as difficult. And then by the third time, it it wasn't a difficult read anymore. And that was actually the original Brim Stoker's Dracula. Um, you know, I, I purchased that some years back. And that was just... It's interesting because it, it goes between, as far as literary-wise, you know, it goes between first and third person um, narration and it, it switches characters and switches point of views and but the the initial story and the the torment of Dracula you know and how he just i don't know and and this may be my interpretation you know he just wanted to feel something um you know whether it be love or pain or lust or whatever he just wanted to feel because it had been so long and that really to me was a really good story um you know, it had said that there was kind of a homophobic type feel to it, but I actually disagree. Um, I think it was just that period of when it was written by Brim Stoker, and I, I thought it was a great book. Uh, let's see, another one of my favorite books. Um, I've read, you know, the the Frankenstein series from Dean Coombs. I've read a couple of his ebooks. Um, I like them. They're, those are kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I know it's it's categorized under the 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 horror genre, um, but I, I really wouldn't think it was actually scary. Then, oh, let's see what else. I actually had a copy of Clive Barker's Hellbound Hearts, which would later, you know, it would it become Hellraiser, but it was the the novella, um, and I actually lost that on the move back to California. That now, if people thought that the original Hellraiser was gruesome, that's actually nothing compared to the book. The book was much more, um. You know, and, and Clive Barker has very much a deviant mind, and, and it really comes through in his writing. So that's up there as well. Man, I wish I still had that book. Uh, maybe I'll have to go online and see if I can buy it again. But that is a great book to have. It, it's um, it's not Hellraiser. It's called Hellbound Hearts. Really good book. Well, I, you know, I agree with you that Stephen King's early work was some of his best. I thought the stand was a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit long, and I've I've read the original, the original story that he turned into his editor, and uh, the editor removed some three thousand words from his original manuscript to make the stand the way it is as people read today. Trust me, that extra 3,000 words was a long road to hoe, but 
I think of his his books that I really did like, that I really thought were excellent. Uh, Shining, yes, was one of those. And uh, I also really liked It, IT, uh, Pennywise the Clown. That, that too was, uh, I thought, an excellent story. Very, I mean, very well written. Um, another writer that I have uh, really enjoyed, especially his early work, is uh, Robert Robert Cameron. Uh, his work, uh, They Thirst. That was a book about vampires, and that was probably their best, spookiest vampire book I've ever read. And he also wrote one called Stinker, which was another excellent horror story. Uh, My Thirst came out in 81, and Stinger came out in 88. He's written a dozen books since then, not all of which I've read. Uh, some of them I didn't like as much as uh, you know, the first few, but writers go up and down sometimes like that too. Actually, Dean Koontz, the very first book of his I ever read was Phantoms, and I thought that was a killer horror story. They made a movie out of it too, which um, of course, was not as good as the book, but uh, it was a reasonable adaptation of the book. But uh, a lot of his other stories, I just couldn't, couldn't get into that much. Um, but uh, King, the Cameron, and uh, one or two of his stories were pretty good as far as. Uh, horror novels went. Uh, of course, my, my favorite horror authors are Poe and Lovecraft, but they didn't really do a lot of novel writing. Uh, Lovecraft actually did write uh, a novella kind of story, but it was fantasy rather than horror, so it was very different for him. Another author that uh, wrote horror short stories that I really enjoyed was uh, Robert Atkinson, I think. Akins? Crap, I can't remember his name. It just shows how much my, my memory is deteriorating. My old age, I guess. And I apologize to the author. But with writing horror, just as in uh, movie horror, doesn't have to be a pile of bodies, a pile of bloody bodies, or a pile of bloody body parts to make it a, a decent horror story. Shirley uh, Jackson wrote a lot of uh, short stories, too, that were horror vain. psychological horror is more intense than massive bloodletting. You don't really need 
something you experience deep inside of your soul or your mind and you know you're scared and you don't have to be covered in blood to be frightened so I think overall that uh, horror is better suited to the mental aspects what you expect is going to happen what you expect around the corner in the dark room when you open the door rather than having to slammed, <clears throat> excuse me, slammed in the face by something that, you know, that's, that's just my opinion, although in my stories of horror, I uh, rarely have blood or death. And yet, the point still gets across that what is happening is frightening and horrible. You know, that's funny. I, I've actually never really sat and thought about it, but that's very true. Your your stories aren't full of dead bodies and, and blood. Um, in, in fact, one of my favorite horror stories that you've written is Between the Moon and Mars. Now, I know that's more of a sci-fi horror, but that's just one of my favorite stories. I remember being really engrossed in it. And, um, you know, and, and in fact, it's mainly dialogue between two corporate heads of a pharmaceutical company. And it, it you know, it shifts towards the end. But, I don't know, something about that story really grabbed my attention and uh, it, it's one of my favorite horror stories because it, it, it just kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. You know, it, going back into one of the podcasts that you were talking about, the what if factor, you know, and that made me think, you know, what if something like that were to really happen? And I don't know, that that's always given me a heebie-jeebies. That's one of my favorite all-time stories that you've written is Between the Moon and Mars. Another one of my favorite stories that you did, um, and that was on Herotica magazine when we were doing that, and I read that story numerous times, uh, was To Kiss and Kill. And then, what was it, last year you came out with a revamped version of it, and it was just so damn good. Um, you know, it, it's, again, there's no real death. There, Well, I mean, there, there's a you know dead body. Um, you know, as the, the officers investigate the murder, but there's really not that much blood or, you know, what you would consider, what would, what people today would consider, you know, the, the main facet of horror. Um, you know, it was pretty much a very subtle story that was more of a psychological horror, like you were just talking about. And it was such a good story and the ending you know the twist at the end was it was just absolutely great too um and and off the top of my head i think those are my two favorite horror stories that you've written um and i forgot about the it 
I read the it a long time ago and from that I've you know kind of developed the thing against clowns I'm not a big clown fan and it's directly derived from reading it and in fact I think I might have it in my my book library I you know probably after this I'm gonna sit down and start pulling out some books and doing a lot of reading uh, just because it's been so long since I've read anything good you know just dive back in but I think what it comes down to I mean for the most part I agree but um, you know for me I don't know if it's just a personal thing uh, when I I read horror or I, I watch a horror film or whatever um, I don't know there's just that aspect of wanting to see dead bodies in blood and, and again that's just my own personal opinion um you know and and to each of their own i mean it's it's everybody's not it's not everybody's cup of tea you know one way is not specifically good for another person that it is for one person you know what i'm trying to say well we obviously have some uh differences in our taste film and literature I guess but we have some similarities as well like uh, you know it just all depends on uh, you know upbringing and, you know, what you were taught you know what you uh, fear feared as a child I guess uh, the very first horror movie I ever saw in the theater was Vincent uh, Price and Pitkin, the Edgar Allan Poe story. And that movie bothered me for weeks after that. But I still enjoy a good horror movie. And while I, you know, and while I, I, I will watch. Street and uh, Halloween series and uh, things like that. Uh, I just think that anytime you have a bunch of young kids who get slaughtered throughout the movie, well, I just fucking feel like they deserve it anyway, so it's not that really, it's not that horrible for me, it's not that much of a horror movie. I deserve it anyway, just for being so fucking stupid. But that's the way things go. It's funny you say that because, like, for example, Friday the Thirteenth. Um, I find myself actually rooting for Jason Voorhees, you know, just because of the way he died. You know, the camp counselors, the teenage camp counselors were out having sex and, and he drowned and they could really care less. You know, they were too busy, you know, doing their own thing. So when he comes back and he starts killing people off, I, I as I kind of feel what you're saying, you know, yes, they do deserve, you know, some type of, of death in, in that film, you know, it's, it's retribution, it's payback for him. So, I follow you on that, but for example, like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, um, Freddy Krueger 
is a child killer. Well, he was a child killer, you know, when he was alive. And then he gets caught. And then, you know, of course, they burn him alive. And for his thing, being revenge on being burned alive, you know, he's going after the kids to kill them in their sleep. And I don't necessarily feel that, um, you know, the, the kids in Nightmare on Elm Street so much deserve to die more so than the kids in Friday the 13th. I think it's just a different type of story. And also, you know, I guess, and after so many sequels, uh, you know, you, you kind of get numb to that, I guess. Because it's not so much for, like, Freddy Krueger getting retribution on being killed or Jason Voorhees being killed. It, at that point, it just, it's about, you know, numbers and body count. And for example, I watched uh, Freddy's Dead in, in 3D the other day. And I remember when I seen it, I was younger. I was probably mid to late teens when that movie came out. And I remember it was it, it was kind of neat. You know, it didn't really scare me any. But uh, I watched it, you know, say 20-something years later. And I actually found it comical. It, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I guess as you mature and you get older, what scares you, you know, changes. You know, I I just have to throw something in here because uh, you know I wouldn't be a writer if I didn't add a tip here and there. You know, uh, movies are primarily visual. You know, you you see what's going on. In a book, however, the reader only sees what the writer shows them. So, in a horror story especially, you know, sometimes they're, they're tough to, to get across to the, to the reader the emotions. But the writer has to show the reader what's going on, or else the reader is just lost. So, that's just another thing to remember. All right, uh, I guess we got time to hit the comics. Um, Dave, you're more the, the, the comic guy. Um, so, if when you talk about horror comics, I guess uh, you, you have to talk about EC comics. Um, tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, whatever you know about EC Comics from the 50s. It's funny because EC Comics kind of indirectly guided my life. Um, they had such a profound effect on what would become of me. Um, and I'll get to that point in a minute. But essentially, EC Comics was a, a publisher in the 1950s. And, um, you know, they, they started off doing um, traditional, we'll call it traditional, uh, comic book work, you know, for kids. And, um, you know, then later on, the, they, they went into the world of making horror comics. And that's where they found their niche. Um, you know, they're, they're, 
uh, of course, and, and I'm, I'm sure you, you probably know too. Um, you know, they they came up with many horror comics that would eventually be translated into neither uh, film on the big screen or even TV series. And um, their their main thing, though, was it was kind of a shock value. In fact, they had one comic book. And and the only reason I remember this is because it's the first reprint that I ever read uh, of a, an actual horror comic from EC Comics. It was called Shock. And it was pretty much a, a kind of whodunit, but it was really graphic. And towards the middle of the story, um, they realized that the person that they're trying to capture this killer was actually uh, like a specter demon that was all skeleton looked very much like the grim Re- grim reaper and the grim reaper uh, I'll just call it the grim reaper um, you know they were a flesh eater so well no they only were they a flesh eater they they would literally eat uh, a human body down to the bare bones and these cops were trying to figure out what it was that was doing this and you know I was introduced to that in, in the 19 I think like late, late 1980s neither between 87 to 89 somewhere in there is when I read it and, and my cousin gave it to me and during this time you know I, I was introduced already into the world of like DC comics I hadn't even got into really so much Marvel comics but DC comics and and even during that time, me being young, you know, my parents would only allow me to, to have the campy story. So I was always used to happy endings. And when I was reading this EC comic called Shock and the Grim Reaper literally ate the two detectives at the end and it just closed with the uh, full page splash of the specter walking away. And the two detectives, they still had their clothes on, but they were completely, uh, well, they were skeletons. And I was like, wow, you know. And then I read some other, and I'm more familiar with the shock, um, the shock books, because I, I read numerous of them. I, I was surprised because I knew about drugs, you know, obviously, um, by that time. And they, they had drugs, uh, you know, active drug use. They had active sex scenes. They, they even, you know, faced like racial, uh, issues and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it, it was something that really grabbed my attention because it was something that I was not used to. I was very used to, like I said, you know, campy DC books. And, that kind of shifted me into, well, there's more out there than what I had known. So probably for that year, I, I really got into reading horror comics. And I, I started studying it, you know, for the next, oh, I'd say for the next five years, you know. I, I'd gone around and tried to find the the classic horror comics. And then, of course, you know, the, the big thing with, um, the book Seduction of the Innocent. 
and I've, I've said this many, many times in, in different interviews, that book is what kind of changed me. And it, and actually, if you sat and read the book, it's a very boring book, but it had one line that kind of changed my world forever. And in that line, it said that comic books was a dark myth of the devil. And I was just like, wow, you know, what a, what a strong sentence to say. And there, short after reading that, uh, you know, the seduction of the innocent, I literally changed my company's name to Dark Myth Production. And that was directly influenced from, uh, Frederick Wool, Wareham, I believe his last name was, um, Dr. Frederick Wilhelm, uh, you know, his book, Seduction of the Innocent, because he was very anti, he was anti everything. And, um, you know, unless it was completely wholesome and campy and everything else, he was against it. And he was the main key factor for this time because they came up with the, uh, comic authority code. And he was the the force behind it. So for the next 40 years, for anybody that had to go and buy a comic book, they would see this seal on it. And it was literally a government operation. And every comic book company for that 40 years, from the, the 1950s to the 1990s, had to send in their completed story. Well, you know, we're talking not just the written story, but the artwork and everything be completed. And they had to send it into the comic authority code to be approved. And if it wasn't approved, then back then, it's not so much now. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, Terry, is, you know, you could go into a supermarket and you could have picked up a comic book. And in order for the supermarket to pick it up, they had to have the seal. Well, it's not so much that today. In fact, you don't see comic books in supermarkets anymore. It's just, it's a whole nother story. But anyway, so he was the direct influence of that. And what caused him to get on this crusade of, of sorts against horror comics, well, not even comic, it was, it was comics in general, but it was the EC comics that he got a hold of that made him feel that comic books were the dark myth of the devil. Well, I had to do uh, I had to do some research on these guys because while I remember the comics, I, I didn't know that much about the company. And uh, what I found out was that in the 1940s, the the original owner, uh, EC Comics, stood for Educational Comics. Because they put out pamphlets and comics uh, for uh, the armed services and schools, uh, you know, during the war. And after the war, they uh, they were still putting out uh, basically pamphlets and some comics. Um, the original owner, Mr. Gaines Senior, I guess died in an accident in 1947 and his son Max, I guess, Max Gaines took over the company in 1947 and he changed it from educational comics to entertaining comics. 
and uh, he was the one who really brought the uh, the horror element to the comics themselves. And uh, something else I found interesting was that uh, one of their publishing branches was Mad Magazine, and I had no idea that they were involved in that. But uh, when when I was younger, I had I had the, the good fortune to have several copies of Mad Magazine from the 1950s, and well, they they it was still a humor magazine, but the artwork was really dark, you know, and they had uh, more people being injured and uh, killed stuff like that so it was uh it was a pretty dark human magazine unfortunately i had to sell those off years ago so i don't have anymore but i still have my uh my personal collections the mad magazines i bought in the 1960s so uh and the artwork uh became much well it became much less dark and you know a lot more funny but uh, see, uh, the company UC uh, Comics was sold in 1960, and it was eventually uh, absorbed into the corporation, which later purchased DC Comics and Warner Brothers. And during the heyday of UC Comics, uh, they had three major comics that came out: uh, Tales from the Crypt. Vault of Horror, and the third one was The Autumn People, where they uh, took a lot of Ray Bradbury stories and, and made them into comics. So all that was, you know, news to me, uh, but uh, while I never actually had any of the EC comics, I do have, uh, they, they took a lot of the comics and put them into paperback form in the 80s. And I've got, uh, you know, the, the three major books that came out from that. You know, the uh, Tales of the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and The Autumn People. <clears throat> and those were, uh, those were good, good, good comics. It wasn't so much, uh, well, I guess it was horror. I mean, it wasn't the kind of horror that you know, naturally we see today. But uh, they were good comics. And now, a word from our sponsors. Before 1971, a young S. Sadie Burbank could only imagine a simple American life as a loving wife and mother. That was her goal when she first married in 1959 at the age of 18. But with the wild social revolution of the 1960s, Burbank's idea of a perfect life would quickly change as she left behind her family to begin a new existence of her own. Her journey would find her on a plane headed toward her new lover, Steve, who was halfway across the world, waiting her arrival in a small bush camp in the country of Liberia. Once there, Sadie is greeted with a fascinating, strange world and plunges herself into the exotic land of the bush. But less than six months later, Sadie would realize all was not as it seemed, and Steve was not the man she fell in love with. 
Burbank found herself desperately seeking escape from the camp and her lover as she raced back to Roberts Field Airport, literally running for her life. Based on an unbelievably true story by S. Sadie Burbank, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner is a manuscript of Burbank's adventurous and deadly experience during a time filled with sex, drugs, and murder. Now available in paperback and hardback. For more information, log into www.redhills.us. Are you looking for a new book, comic, or apparel from your favorite MythWorks or independent creators? Then you're in the right place. Introducing the all-new redesigned MythMart store. Now bigger, badder, better. Sign up and become a member and receive 10 to 50% off on selected items. Get the all-new Terry D. Shearer's Bloody Hell t-shirt or non-members can pick up one of our e-books for only $4.95. Or go into the past and relive the 90s with MythWorks Comics Classics for $3.99. The new MythMart. Bigger, badder, better. Visit MythMart at www.mythworks.com slash MythMart or find us on Facebook for extra savings. Do you own a business or have an item you want to sling? Do you want a chance to reach potential customers? Do you want to make some extra cash? Then here's your chance. For $50, you can have a one- to two-minute commercial featured on each of our shows for an entire month. With six shows a week, that's only $2.09 per podcast. Plus, for an extra $10, your item will be placed into MythMart. So sit back and relax as they handle all stages of transactions. Contact our ad department at info at jaysamon.com. you got in that area Dave well yeah I do um, I don't know if you know this or not Tara but because of horror comics is how we got to graphic novels now like I was saying with the comic authority code a moment ago um, you know so back then you couldn't have anything to do with Monsters, vampires, Frankenstein, werewolf. Um, there was even an incident one time where um, they wanted to come out with a zombie book, and they wouldn't allow the name zombie on the title, so they they actually changed the Z to a V, and it was zombies or some shit like that. But anyway, after um, they sold EC Comics to DC. Now DC was there, you know, DC's highly intelligent when it comes to marketing and they wanted to reproduce these books, but they knew that they couldn't get away with it because of the, the comic authority code. So what they did, um, in 1964, if I remember right, um, they came out with the, the books, the comic books in a, 
book form. You know, I mean, hardback book form. And the EC Comics, I think that the the brand was on there. You know, the logo. I can't remember. But the Comic Authority Code stepped in and said, well, you can't publish these. And DC Corporation came back and said, well, these aren't books. These are graphic novels. They are actual book books, which would turn into graphic novels or paperbacks. And that's the way they got around because they ran it. I think from 64 to like 66 or 67, they reprinted all the, you know, the old EC comic books through book publishing. And, um, you know, that's how they got away with it. That's how the, the feds couldn't get involved and stop them is because they said that, um, you know, these were actual literature books just with pictures, almost like the same sort of kind of like, uh, you know, kids books, you know, because kids books is considered a, a point of literature, not so much in, in this country as where comic books is considered, but, uh, you know, they went the same route and that's how graphic novels came to be. And I remember there was a, a big thing. I don't remember where I heard or read this. Maybe I probably read it a long time ago. Um, EC Comics came out with a, a Ray Bradbury collection, and I, I really want this. And I, I, I've looked everywhere, I couldn't find it. Anyway, they did uh, a lot of Ray Bradbury's stories in, in comic book form, and it was called The Autumn People. And um, that, was, that was mainly all his horror work, and I think they had like crime and suspense. And then they came out with a, a second adaptation with for his sci-fi work, but I don't remember the name of that title. And um, they they pushed it out through graphic novel, and <clears throat> you know the the authority code really tried to stop, but because there was no law prohibiting literature books of what could be written or what could be produced, it ended up coming out. Um, other than that, that's pretty much all I know as far as like the backstory of horror comics. Um, you know, I'm sure that if anyone wanted to, they could probably jump online and, and find out, you know, as much information as you and I both know, uh, you know, because there's just a plethora of information out there, especially about horror comics, because it really changed the way the comic community did things and how business changed because of the the laws put set forth rather you know to try to prohibit them from producing anything that would quote unquote be appropriate for children later on after you know EC Comics ran its course they came up with uh, some other you know comics that were supposed to be horror-like. Um, there was one called Eerie, and uh, there were several others that uh, became more you know, science fiction kind of horror. But, uh, yeah, after EC Comics uh, went down, there wasn't, there wasn't really a whole lot to... Yeah, in the 1950s, there were... Uh, number 
congressional hearings called to discuss, well, communism in the uh, in, in the in the movies in Hollywood, and uh, there was an also there was also a uh, big discussion on juvenile delinquency, and they uh, they took down everything from. Uh, you know, serious bondage magazines and mail order stuff to, you know, EC Comics, which they thought were detrimental to uh, the young minds. And you have to remember, too, that this is right after the war, and uh, millions of soldiers came home after the war, and they were not aware of PTSD at that time, but a lot of soldiers were suffering from it. And they had uh, witnessed horrific acts of, you know, terror and death and everything else while they were away at, at you know, fighting for the country. And they came back and were pretty much dumped on unsuspecting public and a lot of these guys were, were quite ill when they came back and first thing they did when they came back was get married and have lots of kids and thus the baby boomers were born and so in the 1950s uh, it wasn't so much juvenile delinquents as it was a lot of the uh, ex-servicemen who came back and found that they couldn't live in a normal society and that was where uh, a lot of the motorcycle gangs and stuff were formed after the war by the early 1950s um, you know most of the kids from the soldiers were not even, you know, 10 years old yet, but a lot of the soldiers who came back from the war, young men, who had seen things that they should not have seen at that age, decided to rebel, and uh, they became outlaw bikers, and uh, there was a lot of other nonsense going around that uh, Congress thought they could uh, control, and they made lots of crazy laws that didn't do much of anything except put a bunch of people out of business and send everybody else underground. But in the meantime, as time goes on, etc., in the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, a uh, whole new resurgence of comic artists hit the scene. Um, people like Pond Bodhi and Art Crumb and, uh, you know, comics were coming out that you know, had to do with, well, drugs, for one thing. Uh, fabulous furry freak brothers had a run of comics. They were the 
characters in the comics. And uh, there were a number of artists and uh, designers from uh, San Francisco, New York, who became quite famous quite suddenly and fairly rich quite suddenly with their artwork and uh, Von Bodie was just one of my uh, favorite artists back in those days. He died unexpectedly in uh, 1975, I believe. <clears throat> but his son Mark took over the reins of his work. So we still have some, some of that. <clears throat> and of course his uh, his art, his books can be uh, picked up now in a number of places. All I have to do is Google his name, Von Bodie, B-O-D-E, and that'll tell you where to, uh, where you can buy his stuff. And uh, it's worth, it's worth buying. I completely agree. You know, you were the one that actually turned me on to Von Bodie and his psychedelic story in you know, his very, uh, I guess, creamy artwork would be appropriate. Um, you know, and and I have some of his work here at home, too. And I, I don't know if I've ever told you or not, but I actually had the privilege and honor of, of meeting Mark uh, some years back in San Diego. Very cool cat. He, he just really cool down to earth. Uh, you know, we had at least a good half an hour, 45-minute discussion just, just talking about him and his dad and, and what life was like. Very cool guy. And I agree. You know, if, if anybody out there who listens to this likes something different as far as comic books go, definitely go check out, um, you know, Vaughn Bodie, Mark Bodie's work. Uh, and I know there's some stuff there on Amazon.com that you can pick up as well for a good price. But horror comics, I don't know, man. Dave, I mean, uh, I, I just, I've been away from the comic, you know, culture for a long time, so I'm not really sure. But are there any uh, major horror comic companies or selections out there now? Believe it or not, there is. There's, they're still out there. Uh, and coincidentally, it's owned, the company that produces these books are owned by, uh, DC Comics, and it's a Vertigo Comics. And while they may not be the horror comics that we talked about, you know, from the 50s, um, they are definitely considered horror comics. And, uh, like, um, Johnny Blaze, Hellblazer, you know, the, they actually, did a um a movie with Keanu Reeves but they didn't call it Hellblazer they called it um Constantine you know the the chain smoking um detective that can go to hell uh that's that's actually a comic book called uh, Hellblazer i have a couple copies here at home somewhere uh let's see what else they also produce uh Neil Gaiman Sandman which is you know a uh, very good one. Dead Man, they produce House of Mystery, um, The Haunted Tank, 
um, Kid Infinity, uh, one that just actually just came out not too long ago as a movie um, was Jonah Hex. Uh, that's actually considered a, a horror title uh, through Vertigo. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have stuff that is kind of, well, okay, for example, like Image Comics, they produce, uh, you know, horror stuff. Another movie that they, it got turned into was 30 Days of Nights uh, by Steve Nails, or Niles. Um, that originally was a comic book. No, that wasn't published by Image. That was published by IDW, an uh, independent publishing. Uh, but that got turned into, you know, a movie. Um, let's see. Oh, we can't forget Hellboy. Hellboy from Dark Horse is actually considered a, a horror comic as well. Um, you know, so there's there's stuff out there that's still considered to be horror. You know, if you can get your hands on pretty much anything written by Alan Moore, um, that has a, a, always has an element of some type of of uh, horror to it. You know, there, there's there's always some type of human monster interaction with Alan Moore's work normally um and of course now with the zombies you know with the walking dead that walking dead was a comic book by image comics that's what i was thinking when i said image um by robert kirkman um and then of course with that you know kind of started the whole thing with the zombies so you know pretty much every comic book now has a zombie version of their own stuff um, let's see what else. Uh, oh, you know what else? Um, this might interest you too, Terry, is, um, the, the Haunt of Horror, which is published by Vertigo. And what that is, is it's a number of series based on works from Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. Both of your, you know, your two top favorite horror writers. And they've converted them into comic books. So you might want to check that out. I think you might like that. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's really, there's still a market out there. A lot of independent comics still make horror comics. But your main grab at these, if you're interested in picking up horror comics, would probably be through Vertigo. Um, Vertigo, ID. Uh, w and Dark Horse is probably going to be your top three choices to pick up uh, a horror comic nowadays. I know there are a lot of graphic novels now, much many more graphic novels out uh, than there used to be. Uh, they've done graphic novels of H.P. Lovecraft's work. Um, no doubt Poe, although I haven't seen any. And so I'm sure that uh, if people look for them. They can find uh, some sort of horror comic or graphic novel out there somewhere. It's just something that uh, people have to want in order for them to produce more of them. And I, uh, I, I can announce that uh, I recently started working on a new project um, I have been very distressed and uh, unhappy in my current situation for some time, and I've 
just unable to think clearly about anything. But uh, I, I am working on a, a, a new project. Just, it's just a story. Although at this point I don't know how short or long it might be. But anyway, at least I'm I'm back hopefully. And if I can keep this up, then I'll be happy, and hopefully so will my fans. So, I, anyway, I guess that's about it for this episode. Uh, appreciate you all listening once again, and hopefully I can annoy you some more next week, alright? Uh, I'll say good evening, and I'll let Dave close us out. Take care, everyone. Good night. Thank you, Terry. And, you know, I have to say that this has got to be one of my favorite podcasts of all times. I just completely enjoyed this, uh, you know, talking about films to books to comic books. Just had an absolute blast. So thank you with you know, coming up with the idea to talk about that. So come back next week, folks, and find out what else we're going to talk about. Until then, for Terry D. Sheer, I am David K. Montoya. And I bid y'all a good night. Okay. What's your least favorite horror movie? Uh, Showgirls. I have a new least favorite horror movie. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> What's your new least one? Showgirls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it must be scary, but I just... Censor <sighs> yeah. yourself. Wrong show. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to go into our third show here. Reaper Rick's Tree Frog Exposé Cafe, number 10. This is from April 10th, 2013, called Guten Tag. Hello. Hello. Guten Tag. Rick returns this week with news on the cannibal cop, an update on another possible asteroid collision and those happy people in North Korea. Afterward, <laughs> Rick gets happy as he gives us a lot of information about human reproductive systems. Well, there you go. Yep. Okay, let's get to the. I got to hear this. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back. I am Reaper Rick. And you, as always, are not. Okay, I have an update on something I was talking about last episode. If you uh, listen to that show, I was talking about spirits. And I wondered why spirits were usually chased from their homes or whatever by priests, you know, people call them priests to cleanse their homes or whatever. Well, just the other night on The Dead Files, if anybody watches that, Amy Allen, the uh, medium, went through a house and found four or five different uh, spirits residing there and discovered that the land around the house itself was cursed. Now, oddly, and for the first time that I can remember ever hearing this, she suggested to the owners of the house that they called in a Wiccan witch to bless the land and bless the house to remove the spirits and according to a follow-up 
on the show. They, uh, the owners did that, and uh, it appeared to be successful. So, and, and, you know, that's the first time I've, I've ever heard anyone suggest they use uh, something other than a Catholic priest to bless the residents. They occasionally would use a Native American shaman if there's something going on with the land. But that's usually when the spirits involved are also American Indians, ancient usually, but never a Wiccan. So that, that was an interesting development. And since it appeared to work, we're again brought back to the question of why do spirits obey any god whose name is invoked to have them vacate their place of residence. It would seem to me at least that the spirits, since they're dead, would in fact know whether there were any gods that they needed to obey or respond to. So, well, that's just another question that uh, none of us will discover the answer to, I suppose, until we are there and see firsthand what's going on with that bit. So, yeah, in other news, the uh, New York cop who was arrested for conspiracy to kidnap, his, his plan was to kidnap his wife's friend and kill both women and eat them. Somehow or other, uh, well, he was emailing a conspirator, I suppose I call it, explaining how he wanted to accomplish this, uh, well, he called it a fantasy, but uh, the police didn't buy it. So, anyway, we have uh, people out there still wanting to try out human flesh, see if it's as tasty as people say it is. It's been classified as tasting like, much like pork, but, you know, vegetarians don't pay that much attention to what it tastes like anyway, so, anyway, so he's, uh, awaiting sentencing at this point, um, it'd be interesting to find out what they do with that, because he's only convicted of conspiracy to kidnap, and he could be out in a few years, and, uh, we could always go back 
to uh, his fantasy and uh, we see what the white meat tastes like. Well, uh, I should clarify uh, the statement there. The uh, cannibal cop, as he has been termed, uh, is not awaiting sentencing at this time. He is awaiting uh, a verdict on whether he is guilty or not. So, just wanted to make that clear. Although, by the time you hear this, the sentencing or the sentence, sentencing phase may be in progress. So, we'll just have to wait and see about that one. Alright, well, on to something else. In our continuing effort to seek out truth and justice, I'm pleased to announce that another fairly large asteroid whizzed by the Earth this weekend without hitting us. This one, however, was some 600,000 miles out, so that was twice the distance from the Earth to the Moon, so there wasn't really much of a chance of that one striking the planet. However, that makes half a dozen or so just in the past few weeks that have gone by close enough to be noticeable. Not to mention the one that exploded over Russia not too long ago. So, what, what's going on with all these uh, near misses? Is something happening that uh, we should be aware of? Well, I think all that's happening is that uh, for a change, we now have scientists and observers here on Earth that are actually watching and tracking near-Earth objects, these asteroids that come within striking distance of the planet. And one that went by not too long ago, Apophis. That one came in close. That one came in within the orbit of the moon. Bad news about that one is it's coming back in... Uh, 12 or 13 years, I think it's 2026, 20, it's supposed to fly by again, and at that time, it's going to come even closer, but they are fairly sure that it will again miss the planet. Further bad news, however, is that this asteroid is on a uh, regular orbit and it'll be coming by again in 12 or 13 years. So that would put it somewhere around 2036 or 2037, we're not sure. And this time, in the 2030s, they suspect that it very well could strike the planet. Yeah. So, I 
would not be here to uh, see that. Too bad. But for the rest of you who are here in uh, 30 years, or I'm sorry, 20 years or so, 25 years, you may have the opportunity to find out just how well NASA and the government are prepared for a potential hit of a large asteroid. There are a number of peculiar, to say the least, ideas as to how they might, the term they use I think is nudge the asteroid out of its uh, current flight path and hopefully away from the Earth. They have uh, long since decided that attempting to explode an incoming asteroid would only cause more damage, perhaps. If it broke up into a hundred pieces, all of which were still streaming toward Earth, it could conceivably cause still quite a bit of damage. So they want to move it gently away from the Earth. And they have several ideas about how this might be accomplished, none of which have been attempted yet. And due to the budget cuts, especially to NASA, I would suspect that they will never have the opportunity to actually try this experiment out. And they will have to wait until we have a giant rock headed straight toward us before they actually get around to seeing if any of these ideas will work. And all I can say, <clears throat> excuse me for that, is good luck both to uh, NASA and to you, if you're still here at the time. So, that's just something else. We'll have to wait and see what happens. And now we turn once again to North Korea. North Korea has now threatened to eliminate the truce, the peace treaty, whatever, that was uh, signed in, oh, was it 1955, so it's been more than 50 years that, albeit an uneasy truce, has existed between North and South Korea. But, uh, Korea North Korea seems to think that uh, they deserve what South Korea has. And, I mean, if they, if they want help, if they want food for their people, if they want modern conveniences for the country, why don't they just ask? 
I mean, it's not like the United States has ever turned down assistance to anybody. You know, um, the people, the North Korean people, don't want war. They would prefer to have food and perhaps electricity, perhaps something aside from a water buffalo to help till their fields. I think it's only the uh, the government and the uh, upper military people who have anything resembling luxury or decent food on a regular basis. True, North Korea does have a standing army of over a million men. I'm sure they have lots and lots of really big, scary weapons that they have obtained from China and possibly Russia. But the idea that the North Koreans could somehow start a war and with South Korea, which would, of course, involve the United States since we have 30,000 soldiers pretty much on the border. And if the United States got involved, then more than likely China and perhaps even Russia would also become involved. And then we would have to draw in NATO forces from all of the friendly countries, all two or three, yeah, three of them to help us out, and it could conceivably start another global war. You know, why doesn't Kim Jong-un simply call up the president and say, yo, how about sending us some food and we'll stop making stupid videos about blowing up Washington and we'll stop rattling our sabers and threatening to go to war. I mean, it's the 21st century. There's no real reason to go to war anymore. If you don't have something you need, all you have to do is ask for it and somebody give it to you talking about countries now, not individuals, because you know, we still don't have what we need. <clears throat> but regardless of that, North Korea is making a lot of squeaky noises to get attention. But the only attention seem to be drawing them to themselves is scorn and disbelief that they would have the audacity to threaten the entire world with a war that they could not possibly win. But who knows why people do things anymore, or ever for that matter. There was a time when 
was essential for growth. If people needed more land, they simply went to their next door neighbor and took it from them. Uh, it's not really necessary anymore. Uh, it's really pointless and stupid to cause so much conflict over something that would be so easily solved with diplomacy. But then, you know, it's not my place to make those kinds of decisions. Sure, the president has numerous people on his staff to advise him how to make things better. I haven't seen anybody step up for that at the present time, but you know, we still have a few years left in the Obama White House, so. Just have to wait and see about that too. So many damn things. We just have to wait and see what's going to happen because we can't know until something does happen. Okay, okay. Here's something I just thought of, and it pertains to the asteroid stuff I was talking about just a little while ago. Okay. General consensus is that we would somehow be able to nudge the asteroid into a different orbit and keep it away from the Earth. Well, we we know that uh, that's going to cost a huge amount of money. Somebody has to has to pay for that, right? Well. Instead of nudging the asteroid away from the Earth, why don't they nudge it into an Earth orbit? Okay, keep it circling around the Earth, and then the government could rent out the fucking rock to companies who. Would mine it. The general consensus is that most asteroids have a lot of stuff that people would want to mine. Everything from precious metals like gold, platinum, to just basic stuff like iron ore and other minerals that could be used here on Earth. So instead of you know just kicking it out into space and hoping it doesn't come back and kick us in the ass in a few years, they should just position it above Earth, and that whatever companies have the balls and the money to do so go up and. Mine the damn rock until there's nothing left of it. There has uh, there's been talk. Excuse me, big mumble here. 
there's been talk of you know decades in the future that companies will in fact go out to the asteroid belt which is you know out beyond Mars and eventually mine the asteroids there for just those those things precious minerals that uh, can be used here on Earth but that is uh, again decades away it's a potential money-making venture but at this point it's far far away so what about just bringing these asteroids in and working on them here I mean you know out in space but basically here and we've had so many asteroids just recently go past us and that's just uh, basically money flying by and they could set up some sort of arrangement where they have all these near misses be brought into orbit and send hell you could even send robot workers out there to mine for whatever minerals and whatnot they wanted from the from the rock. But uh, that would certainly be a a good way to pay keep the rocks from coming back another time and smacking into us. And you know be allowing companies to make money from, from the, the project. be a lot cheaper than uh, trying to push them out of the way. We don't even know if that would uh, save us or not. But uh, I think that is something that would uh, help out everyone concerned. Well, that's my thought on that. Yeah, okay, in other news, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line has got some uh, free publicity once again. It seems that when uh, one of the ships returned to Florida recently from a five or six day Caribbean cruise, over a hundred uh, people on the ship were ill with the uh, neurovirus, the one that causes uh, severe vomiting and diarrhea, that usually lasts about three days, and then another day or two just to recuperate from all the stress and trauma. So, I mean, what better way to spend your retirement savings than being in a tiny stateroom bathroom on a board a ship? for, you know, three or four days, puking your guts out. Sounds like a, a great vacation to me. Once again, Carnival has been, uh, well, uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line has been struck a low blow. But I think with all the uh, bad press that cruise lines have had the past few months that uh, uh, I'm surprised people are even signing up for the 
goddamn things. Ran to a goddamn island. Have the boat sink under you. <clears throat> or, uh, you know, have a fire that shuts down all of the uh, water systems and the food preparation, all the electricity in the ship. You get sick for three or four days and uh, can't do nothing about that either. down into the vagina area 
So if anybody wants to swap it out or something, you just, you know, give it a little tug here and there and pops out. Hopefully. But the thing of it is, you know, here are people suing the manufacturer for uh, making this this product which has injured people and yet the company is still advertising the damn thing trying to get people to buy it so what, what, what can we uh, assume from this that uh, People are stupid because they are willing to risk their health by having this item inserted into them, or that the uh, manufacturer is uh, just ignoring the problems this item has caused, and they're, of course, looking for money, so... Uh, Money is the thing that drives people, drives companies. At any rate, I don't know. People are, I, I, I think that, you know, people are stupid. I'm going to go with that one. Something else that uh, they have been advertising recently on TV is, is something new to me. That's something I've never heard of. It is a... Uh, I'm not really sure what it is. I think it's a cream of some sort. It comes in a tube-like object, so, you know, it looks like it's probably a cream. Um, can't remember the name of the product. Shucks. But the, uh, the complication or the, uh, problem that this cream is supposed to help alleviate is called ovodynia ovodynia okay it is apparently um, a situation where the uh, vulva or the outer lips of the female vagina become swollen and inflamed making it difficult to sit or wear any type of tight panties or just pants, tight Levi's, jeans, whatever. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> God, excuse me. And this was uh, rather humorous um, when they had a woman riding a bicycle who apparently was suffering from Volvodynia, uh, and it's apparently rather uncomfortable to ride a bicycle while you have this condition. And although they didn't mention it, I would suspect it's also rather uncomfortable to have sex with this condition. So at any rate, the uh, cream and they didn't actually discuss how you use this cream, but I would again assume that cream is applied to the sore area of the body and you're supposed to help 
numb the area. So that you can ride bikes again. Or have sex. Or wear tight pants, I guess. Um, at any rate, here's just one more amazing medical product that they have to advertise on TV. So, it's just marvelous, isn't it? Alright, I got uh, one more piece of international bullshit to talk about here, and then we can move on to something more entertaining. In a Pakistani city, Muslims went on a rampage and burned 100 Christian homes because one of them reportedly said something disparaging about the Muslim God. Now we've heard about such things happening before when someone, you know, draws a cartoon or tells a joke or something about Allah. And the curious thing about this is that why the Muslims feel they have to defend their God in such a way. Um, if the God was offended, don't you think that God could take care of his own shit? And it just doesn't make any sense. You don't see, you know, Buddhists running around burning things and slaughtering people because somebody made a slur about Buddha. Well, that's a bad example, I guess. Buddhists don't believe in violence, per se. But <clears throat> I just find it unusual that uh, the Muslim God cannot uh, defend himself and uh, Muslim followers feel it necessary that they take vengeance for any slander spoken or printed about their God. Just, uh, just a curious note, that's all. I have nothing against Allah, Muslims, or Buddhists, or anybody else. Uh, I'll do their thing, just do it somewhere else. Alright, <clears throat> well, we have a lot of uh, sexual information to give out tonight. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, penises anyway. Anyone for penises out there? Apparently, some of the uh, Animal Kingdom members have uh, curious and unusual penises. The largest penis in the Animal Kingdom belongs to the blue whale at, you know, nine feet or so, give or take an inch or so, you know, Oh, blue whales, yes, well, they have, uh, they, 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 they get the trophy for that one, I guess, all right, on the, um, the other side of the coin, as it were, gorillas, who are the largest, you know, primate, um, reportedly, they have a two-inch penis, now, I, I cannot verify this fact, but it uh, seems odd. Oh, <clears throat> moving right along. 
the Argentine Bluebill Lake Duck. This Argentina, by the way, has a 17-inch long penis, which is shaped like a corkscrew. Uh, the reason it's shaped like a corkscrew is that it matches the female duck's vagina shape. It doesn't say anything about whether the female duck's vagina is 17 inches long or not, but I, uh, I guess the female duck doesn't really care. Ah, moving right along, the lowly barnacle, which spends its entire life glued to rocks and other marine objects, uh, being stuck in one spot, does make it hard to have sex with other barnacles. So they have uh, evolved a situation wherein... They have technically the largest penis in the animal kingdom per size. Uh, these penises grow new each year just before their brief mating season. And depending on whether the barnacles are in calm water or like, say, on a pier, you know, you've seen barnacles clustered on uh, the pier stays, the wooden legs of the pier, where the water crashes against the barnacles over and over again, all day and all night. In situations like that, where there's a lot of water movement, the barnacles produce a thicker, stronger penis, so it can avoid being thrashed about as much in the waves, whereas in calm water, they have a longer, narrow, slender penis, so they can reach out and touch people or barnacles around them see if anyone is willing to partake, apparently. Okie dokie. <clears throat> the uh, Argonaut Octopus, which is a form of Nautilus, actually has a detachable, detachable penis. Um, their penis detaches from the Argonaut and swims off on its own, looking for lady parts to impregnate. All by itself it does that, so apparently the Argonaut does not enjoy sex at all, because his penis just swims off on its own, and it's kind of like a zombie sperm bank or sperm bomb, I guess, and apparently when it finds a female Argonaut, it just does its job and, well, actually, I don't know what happens to it. I suppose it 
drops off and dies. So, does that mean that the Argonaut also produces a new penis every year for uh, mating? Uh, nature is a strange beast. We also have, finally, or the final one we have is the bean weevil type of beetle. The bean weevil has a penis which is covered with hard, sharp spikes. Needless to say, um, these spikes scar the female's reproductive organ and apparently that is to keep the female from having sex with more than one being legal in, in a reproductive cycle. I'm sure she wouldn't want to do it again after that. Anyway, it also ensures that the uh, weevil who impregnates the female has his genes passed on because she ain't about to have that happen to her again. Okie dokie. Um, apparently, and this is just a, a toss in here, apparently uh, male cats also have a bit of a spiked wanger on them. And uh, that's why during mating season you hear the cats yowl so much because when they are mating it's quite painful for the poor female. But that doesn't stop them from doing it more than once, obviously. Anyway. Okay, another science news. Oh, I forgot about this one. Um, in Japan, Kobe, Japan. Japanese have taken cloning to a whole new area, I guess. Um, they've cloned one mouse a total of 581 times, single mouse. And all of these mice are identical because they're clones of the original. They look exactly alike. <clears throat> the uh, problem with this information is, of course, that uh, it could lead to human cloning. And, you know, if the Japanese started cloning themselves, and they all looked alike, well, how would we know? Yeah, never mind. Okay, apparently a scientist has discovered that male sperm is more active and stronger during the winter months, winter and early spring, and that's entirely feasible because since most mammals have their babies in the springtime, you would think, evolutionarily speaking, that sperm, male sperm would be more viable, stronger, when 
the female is most approachable. I myself was born in September, the end of September, so I was conceived probably in January, see, or late January, early February. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, so if you're looking to get pregnant, women, try to uh, do your conceiving the winter months, January, February, because that's when your male counterpart is going to be the most, his sperm, rather, will be the most active. Well, me. <clears throat> Psychologist in, uh, at Harvard, I believe, has recently come up with another reason as to why men like breasts. And uh, I don't understand what the big deal is. You know, if he's at Harvard, all he has to do is go down to the quad and ask, you know, a dozen or so student, male students, why they like breasts. And I'm sure that uh, they would all pretty much give him a, a similar answer to, well, I like breasts because they're cool, dude. The great big soft globs of fat here yeah <clears throat> and they have a little little point of erectile tissue on the end that is also nice to suck on but apparently apparently <clears throat> when babies are sucking on their mother's breasts the stimulation of the nipple sends a chemical to the woman's brain that causes pleasure and it makes the woman pay attention to the child and to make sure that the child receives sufficient nourishment. Although, most women I've ever talked to that were nursing said it hurt like hell. But, uh, regardless, apparently the, uh, the chemical that sends pleasure to the woman's brain is also activated when grown men suck on their nipples or play with them show them attention. Now, that is true for some women, absolutely, although not for all women. And I don't know why some women receive no pleasure from nipple or play, but many of them do. I wonder if it has anything to do with having a baby because I know that like uh, cows do not give milk from their you know from their udders unless they've had a baby and the sucking on the udder causes the milk to flow and even after the, the baby cow is grown up the cow still produces milk this has nothing to do with 
female arousal, obviously, but I just wonder if, well, I, that's totally beside the point. <clears throat> and I guess we're done for the night. Too bad. Perhaps next week we'll get into something that, uh, something else. Yes, indeed. I say, guten Tag to all, and to all a good night. See you next time. I did not know that goes there. I didn't either. No. <laughs> I got four kids, and I still don't know where they came from. But now I got a general idea. Yeah. Talk to the mailman. Huh? Well, mm. so they need uh, visual aids. That's a video podcast. There we go. Coming soon. Coming soon. <laughs> Imagine Flashback Fridays as a video podcast. No. Oh. This this is a piece for radio. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that's us for another week. Holy cow! Really? I know. That went by fast. Yeah. You know what it was? We were distracted by the monkeys. Exactly. Those damn monkeys. Damn monkeys. I haven't heard them lately. Oh, it's because of the banana stalks that you had. Uh... Are they in my closet? Uh they're after my bananas. No, that ain't right. Let's go get them. Yep. Alrighty. Until next week. Uh, this is Mike and Rob. Bye. See ya.